0: Have you ever heard the saying that if you put a frog into boiling water, it will jump out immediately? But if you put a frog in cold water and slowly bring the water to a boil, it won't recognize the danger at all. Could this metaphor be applied to how we deal with change in science? Or maybe just change in general? So when we talk about changing practices and methods in geology and exploration, do we all have to remember to boil the water really slowly? Welcome to Exploration Radio. On today's episode, we're talking about transitions in our science with John Oronsky. So come join us and let's explore.
1: Welcome to Exploration Radio. Today, we're going to talk about transitions and in particular where our industry is with respect to change. And our guest today is John Oronsky. So John, welcome to Exploration Radio, and can you introduce yourself and tell our listeners about your background?
2: Thanks, Steve. Well, I guess I grew up in a mining town. In fact, uh, I was more or less born on a mine site. My mother had to have me in Kalgoorlie in, in Perth with the flying doctor, but that's because there was no uh, hospitals on site. But yeah, grew up on the Big Bell mine site and then Kalgoorlie, and so I guess I've always been, uh, you know, from a family point of view in, in the industry- Uh, Did my first degree at the School of Mines in Kalgoorlie. Uh, Joined Western Mining at the age of 20. Uh, Did a PhD at UWA in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, stayed with Western Mining. Finished up there as chief geoscientist. Uh, Got taken over by BHP a couple of years with them. And then I've been out the last 11 years uh, on my own consulting, director of a couple of junior companies. on the pro bono side, uh, working a lot with researchers, chairman of the, the Centre for Exploration Targeting at UWA, and uh, and more recently uh, started as a partner in a private equity group, Ibera Capital. So that's that's kind of a potted history of it. And I, I guess in terms of what sort of motivated me over that time, it's really been the links between the science of exploration and the business of exploration and and developing a bit of the language and the frameworks that that, that bring those things together. Um, but the science as well, because it, it sort of became clear that we really didn't have in place uh, the scientific framework, the fundamental conceptual framework that we needed to support the, the process of targeting as we were moving into the 21st century. So that's been a bit of a passion working on that as well.
1: So your, your dad's a geologist, your he, brother's a geologist? That's right, yeah. There's yeah. a real family? Yeah, no, there is, a, there is, yeah. So what was the impact of uh, have your father as an expression geologist growing up?
2: Well, I guess you know naturally you're you're exposed to that, and you're you're exposed to that as a profession. And and you know my my grandfather also sort of, while they didn't call him geologists back then, sort of more or less worked in that field as well. So,
1: she's I was born on the side of a volcano, which tells me nothing about me. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: about you? Ah, uh, no, definitely <laughs> not geology in yeah. my, oh, my
1: background. So, um. Our own science is going through a transition, and that's what we want to talk about. So what do we mean by transition? Well, I've got in front of me Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and I think our science, geology, has got one of the great stories of transition, and that's the story of plate tectonics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're an avid fan, more than, a, more than a pastime for you to look at the history of plate tectonics?
2: Well, yes, and, and the perspective that interests me is kind of the sociological one, which is really what Thomas Kuhn's... Book was all about, you know, he was responding to, you know, the classic orthodox ideas of science as a, as a rigorous, objective process, and he was pointing out that actually there's a really, really significant social dimension to it, and and this idea that there are these things called paradigms, which is an agreed way of thinking at it a, about a problem, and that it's not that easy to overturn a paradigm, and but but when it does. Um, Everything changes. So plate tectonics is is interesting to me because of the very very long history where evidence built up in favour of this idea, but it took a very very long time, you know, for it to be accepted. So I find it interesting that the first person who we know ever commented on the idea that it looked like Africa and South America were joined was a cartographer called Abraham Ortelius. And when did he do this? 1596. Why? Probably because he was one of the first guys that had in front of him a map of Africa and South America. And it's like, well, these things look like they meet. And how did he think that these two continents might have been split apart? He said, well, a combination of earthquakes and floods, which is probably not too bad a geological interpretation for 1596. And, uh, you know, if you just go and do a casual Google search, You'll find any amount of examples of people in the mid-1800s drawing cartoons, speculative cartoons about how the Atlantic Ocean had opened uh, between uh, Africa and, and, and South America. In a lot of people's thinking, the, the idea of um, plates moving, which was originally at the beginning of the 20th century, usually referred to as continental drift, originated with Alfred Wagner, who was a I mean some people say that he was a meteorologist. I think you could still say he was a geologist. he had that earth earth science training uh who really put together and and synthesized uh a lot of those observations. but I'm fairly sure he was he was not the only one. There were people like dutour in um south africa and um and a pretty famous British guy whose name's just gone out of my head who who really were pointing to all the observations in in faunal and floral. Uh, correlations, particularly in, in in what we now call Gondwana, that really provided the evidence for this. I guess the the problem was uh, a, a lack of any perceived physical mechanism. How could these continents move? And probably the, the sort of mistake that Wagner made was rather than saying, well, here are my observations, I don't know the mechanism, he proposed a mechanism that really was not clearly viable. So for that reason, those ideas were rejected in the orthodoxy, though I'm sure there was always a lot of people who who, who never rejected those observations. And it was only when a major new data set became available. And I think this is a bit of a digression here, but I think one of the interesting things about the progress of geology as a science is it's very strongly linked to the availability of a completely different new data set, a different way of looking at the Earth. So the key data set that I'm talking about, of course, is bathymetry of the ocean floor in far more detail than anyone had ever had it before. And why did we get that? Well, Second World War, anti-submarine warfare, trying to understand the ocean floor that that came out of that. And that that stuff was released after the war, Mm -hmm. and you had people like uh, Hazen, Charles Hazen, who working with his uh, partner, Marie Tharp, who were the first to kind of recognise, well, the mid-Atlantic ridges, you've got this kind of like a, a rift, the mountains, but they look like a seam of the earth that, that you could trace all around the earth. And Hazen originally looked at that in terms of the expanding earth because he hadn't seen the other side of the situation. But then it was um, recognising the, 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 um, the subduction zones, the, the Benioff zones. And I think once again, it's kind of interesting that they were originally called Benioff Zones in the West, but it was then subsequently realised that the Japanese had identified those about 50 years earlier, so now the proper name is Wadati-Benioff Zones. I think about 1911, uh, Wadati recognised those, so we started to see the other part of the story. The really clinching argument for for the scientific community was the the magnetic striping and and being able to see the you know relate that to the magnetic reversals date them and to see those things moving apart at, at the mid-ocean ridges and uh, so I guess for a pretty intense period of time in the late 50s early 60s a lot of that data came together till it, it became quite clear that, that that was the new paradigm but you know it took a little while for that to be accepted and I think it's interesting it's interesting to look retrospectively at this, because I think a lot of people now, if you read the history of geology, you would probably kind of imagine yeah, well, you had uh, Tuzo Wilson, you had all these guys, Matthews and Vines, and that was in the early 60s. So by the late 60s, everyone kind of believed it. But I don't think that's right at all. So, for example, when I was doing my undergraduate degree and getting taught in 1983, and my lecturer was saying, well, you know, there's this plate tectonics idea, but you know, it's just a theory. So I am still going to teach you about geosynclines and my geosynclines and Yugi geoclines <laughs> and all, all these terms that, that 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 no one even knows about in in the younger generation. But that that was what they were the sort of descriptive terms that were that were used.
1: So what what fascinates me about that is, and the reason why we want to have this conversation is, I'm aware of the story when I was learning geology. I basically learned. From Wagner to Vines and Matthews, as if it was a logical and s- single stepwise jump, but in fact it's a whole evolution, including post Vines and Matthews, for acceptance, and that's that's what I mean by transition. And that leads me to the next point, which is really to talk about exploration, which is the reason we're here, which is exploration is in the middle of a transition. We're moving from prospecting or surface-based exploration to more sophisticated than prospecting and more sophisticated by necessity because we're moving undercover. And we're coming out of a very successful period of discovery, the 60s and the like, and we're moving into a period or we've evolved into a period where we're becoming less and less successful. And the real thing that interests me is uh, where we are in the acceptance that we are actually in transition for a start.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I would say, and and uh, I, I think this is perhaps more of an Australian centric perspective, but I think it's now recognised that 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 this is the case. And I think if you look around the world, and you look at any significant discoveries, even if they're made in deepest, darkest Africa, like Kakula, uh, Kamoa that that Friedland's discovered over the recent uh, decade or so in um, in the Congo that's still a concealed ore body. Yeah. So uh, I think the reality is that nothing really important, nothing significant is being found sticking out of the ground this century. And and, and when I, I actually did an analysis in Australia a while back and I found that in the base metal space, no economically significant deposit was found you know, completely exposed you know, that, that wasn't concealed since about the late 1980s. So.
1: So now would probably be a good time to articulate a concept that you're well known for, which is the search space concept.
2: Mm. Well, I think the search space is is the absolute key concept in mineral exploration. It's the concept that links all the scientific parts of our business with the actual commercial success and outcomes. And what it relates to is the fact that exploration is a relatively unusual business in that what your activity is, is searching through some defined parameter space to find something that, that is valuable. But the critical thing about it is that once you found it, it's not there to be found again. And that really sounds like a trivial point, but it's actually profound. And a lot of decision-making is made and has been made in our industry, not recognising that point. Once it's been found, it's not there, sampling without replacement. So what that means is that exploration is one of those businesses where if you keep doing the same thing in the same place, you are guaranteed to get worse and worse results because you find the easy ones and you find the harder ones and you have to spend more and more time doing it. Now, why I emphasize that point is that that's very, very different to just about any other activity where if you continue to do the same thing in the same area, incremental improvements mean you generally get better and better at doing it. So the search space becomes a really critical concept and exploration success comes from actually identifying a new search base and then going in there and collecting your own data and and looking at it. And some search base concepts are kind of obvious, like if people have only explored the surface, then you explore deeper. But some are kind of a bit more subtle, like you look at Western Australia and nickel deposits were found in 1966 in the middle of a terrain that had 80 years plus of intense previous gold exploration, right? So you can generate a new search base by looking for something different in the same place. But, you know, it's sort of an... In a way, it's an abstract concept, but it's a, it's a really, really important concept. It means, it means you look where someone hasn't looked before.
1: I agree with you. I think this is the most important concept. So one of the big things about this concept is that people can sometimes understand it. There's awareness there, but that doesn't change their belief system. So it actually doesn't affect their behavior. So. Um, well, well, I think...
2: I think that that really gets to quite an interesting conversation, Steve, about the relationship between new information that people have and and their behaviour. Because I think you know it is interesting because I've often been in conversations where I think people accept a a conversation, for example, about the search space and the importance of looking in new search spaces, but then the behaviour doesn't translate and. I'm not sure that that occurs because of a lack of understanding of the concept. I think it occurs more because of the inertia of people continuing to do things in the same way that they've always done.
1: So if you're training, if you're trained one way for 20 years and the search space or a transition occurs in any industry, you are no longer consciously skilled or unless you actually transition yourself. Is there a possibility, therefore, that we... So some people find it difficult to transition because they aren't skilled?
2: Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think you've got a comfort zone of a certain set of technologies, a certain set of methods and approaches that, that you've used and or your peers have used over a long time. And if someone says, well, do you know what? That's actually no longer that relevant to what, what we're doing. You I mean, know, it's not really a message you want to hear.
0: I mean, that's really no different than what you were saying that you're being taught about things outside of plate tectonics, even though there was a theory then. I think Mm -hmm. there is that inertia in what you're taught. Correct. um, Absolutely.
1: So I'll give you a a great example from our
0: podcast, which is Dave Kingston, the rover boys and the end
1: of surface petroleum. Mm -hmm. Walk into BHP now, and we have, and sit down and talk to them about what they do as a job and compare and contrast with Dave's life, and you'll find that they are unbelievably different. There's probably no commonality other than it's the same goal.
2: That's right. And, and, you know, I don't have to tell you guys that that's a pretty good uh, analogue, what happened at the end of the sort of search for surface petroleum and the transition to concealed deposits. And the industry had to reconstitute itself, reorganise itself, apply new technologies in a completely different way. And there's absolutely no doubt that the mineral exploration industry has to do the same thing.
1: So there are lots of other industries that have this. And one of the ones that I've been following a lot is archaeology. Uh-huh. Um, and the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb is an absolute classic search space. For example, the Valley of the Kings was considered to be completely ex- explored. Everything's been discovered, but Tutankhamun's tomb was buried by shallow gravels. And of course, now they're looking even deeper, trying to find even a new search space again beneath the shallow gravels, looking for very seriously buried things. And what's interesting is, from the sociology perspective again, is the the resistance that Carter met over the belief system that it was fully explored, even though people hadn't explored covered terrain in the Valley of Kings.
0: I think maybe there is a thing in there that uh, maybe it's easier. The concept of search space is maybe easier to explain from a physical sense where you can go, like, you know, we've explored the surface and now just go the next 50 meters below. So I think that's easier for people to maybe understand. But the other point, that you made, which I quite like, is that it can actually be a change in a way of thinking as well, which can open up a whole new avenue of doing things.
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the ways to, just to taking up that point, Ahmad, you know, I like to say that there's, there's four rules, four really basic rules to successful exploration. The first one is define what you're actually looking for. What are you actually trying to discover? The second is identify a new search space where that, what you're looking for plausibly could be. But the third one, and this is the important one to what you're just saying now, is aggressively collect your own primary data in that new search space. And the fourth rule, by the way, is make sure you learn from all your experience and get that feedback loop happening. So expiration is about, okay, you've got a search space, then you have to go out and collect your some data in that search space that systematically samples it, right? Now, this is the key point because the data that you have to collect becomes radically different right so the data you collect when you're doing surface exploration prospecting surface sampling is not the same data that you collect in the covered search space and i think it's not it's not crystal clear to us in many cases exactly what that data is i mean you can just drill it but drill what analyze what analyze for what because you know if you're just drilling it on a scale that you're going to find a deposit it's it's going to be too it's not going to be expensive so it's not going to be economically viable so to me, that's, the, that, that's one of the big thinking challenges is getting people to, to really focus on, okay, I've got my new search space, but now how am I going to target? How am I going to operate in that search space? And the implications are what new skills, what new technologies are required for that.
1: So are we exploring, say, the covered search space as an iteration of the way we've always explored or is there room for step change?
2: Yeah, I'd say by and large, as I said, most discoveries are being found in the in the covered and I mean covered in the most general sense of the word, including you know blind in lithologically blind in known camps, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, by and large, it's extensions, it's extrapolations of, of known trends, and I don't think what we're, what we're not doing enough are applying systematic technologies that are specifically designed to explore that that new search space. So I, I think that's where the that, you know that's one of the critical areas where the innovation has to occur. It has to occur at targeting. But then it also has to occur at that scale from your predictive targeting to your, you know, what we've talked about in the past as the prediction detection trade-off at the scale of actually collecting that basic data.
0: I guess I get the point that you're trying to say is that you know, the, the, the easiest way to create something new is take from what we already know. So in a, in a lot of ways, we are taking surface methods and trying to apply them uh, to the subsurface. And that's probably not going to be very successful long term. I guess my question is like, how do you get to a point where you're training people to explore differently?
2: Well, I think you, 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 you ha- it it starts with the research. It starts with the innovation. Um, what are we looking for? What 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 are the halos that that we expect to find? And there's some good work on that. But 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 what I think's lacking is, given that understanding, what is the sort of data that you actually need to collect or that you can collect that's meaningful? on the grid spacing that's relevant, right? So it's, it's, it's no point having, having these sort of uh, understanding of footprints and halos that you can recognize retrospectively in a data-rich environment, right? Yep. It's got to be things that you can systematically and, and, and robustly collect. So, so do you think there has to be a level of experimentation? Absolutely, the... yeah. a- absolutely. People have to actually try and remember the four, I said the four rules of exploration, collect your own data, but then, but then have a learning loop and yeah, try and realise what actually, what actually works. Some of it will work, some of it won't work. Uh, and, and I guess one of the things that will be different in mineral exploration relative to, say, petroleum, where it's more or less the same sort of system, is there'll be a lot more idiosyncratic aspects to it, right? So what will work in one environment That's won't right. work in yeah. another. I mean, you know, the environments where undercover exploration so far as is most effective is is those ones where you get a good geophysical signature you know an electromagnetic yeah. signature so that's a technology we understand in some cases a, a a magnetic signature. our ability to explore systematically undercover in anything that's not just an extrapolation of known mineralization for things that don't have that signature is really poorly developed but mm-hmm. I think that's where we have to we have to emphasize that, and one of the critical things and i is that you've got to understand the false positives. So it's no good saying, well, I've got this sort of alteration halo that I see a, you know, goes a kilometre or two around my ore body, therefore that's what I'm going to look for, unless you have some idea of how common that alteration halo is where it's not associated with an ore body. Yep. And, and so that's a paradigm shift because one of the things, and, and I, I challenge you to tell me any sort of research project you've seen in the last ever, 20 years ever, where someone said, I'm going out into this barren area and I'm going to document the sort of alteration associated with all these non-all systems, right? No one does that. No one does that. And yet that's the critical piece of information that, that's missing.
1: What's background.
2: <laughs> yeah, what's background. What's background and, uh, and and what's important, you know? So people work from the ore body out, and they get all these halos, and and, and you go further out. And, but the critical question is, how unique is this? Right?
1: So, so I have a, a somewhat of an explanation for that. Is that I believe that we have been... Uh, the way, I mean, the way you usually articulate expiration is it's about sequential aerial or volume reduction. Yeah. But I actually think expiration has really evolved from initial data source followed by hypothesis generation in and around, and the story is built around data, existing uh, availability bias. Whereas undercover expiration, by lack of a complete step change in lack of data, or at least more uncertainty, means that it has to be sequential volume reduction. It has no choice but to start outwards and come in. And we've evolved through a world of going, this is my system, this is where I am in my system, this is my halo, and now we're struggling with trying to work with foresight rather than hindsight. We are struggling and expecting the mere application of footprints to lead to discovery, which is not the same thing because it misunderstands probability.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a – a, a few reasons why the, the the simplistic footprint approach doesn't work, and and one of them is is the false positive issue that that I was talking about. Uh, the other is that many cases people advocate footprints, but they're just not at a scale that, that that's pragmatic exactly. uh, for for exploration, particularly when you consider the three dimensionality of it. And another yeah, one, an, another aspect of, of of footprint as well, which I don't think is emphasised, is um, let's call it the ease with which you can recognize that you really have that footprint. So it, it, it's one, So, for example, a certain type of alteration, how easy it is it to, to look at that in the whole and say, yes, I definitely have that. And that in turn is a function of the type of technology used to sample that volume, which in turn is a function or relates to cost. So there's quite a few things that are, that are related that, that you have to manage. So you're managing a, a parameter space of you know, how clear is it that, that what you're finding is is the right result, what is its significance, what's its false positive ratio, what's its halo, right, and what's the cost of the technology to get that data. And these are all the things, that's a four-dimensional parameter space that you're trying to manage to get the ultimate result.
0: So a lot of the things that you're talking about there are, um, are technical geoscience related. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the impediment to us actually getting to the point where we solve these technical challenges is behavioural?
1: Yeah,
2: well, I mean, you know, behavioural at a number of different scales. But um, first of all, you've got to have people who accept that this is the world that you're living in and sometimes that's just a generational thing i mean you know we're we're all familiar with that old joke or whatever that that science advances one funeral at a time you know and that you, you know, <laughs> so that you, you just have to have the, the people die out and and that's probably a little bit overstating it but i can tell you there are a lot of people who probably went well there were a lot of people who went to their graves not believing you know plate tectonics no, no, e- no, even right. when we started yeah. to get differential gps and, and and things like that so so so, so that that's part of it But I think the other thing that's really important is that pattern recognition, and by that I mean the ability to recognise a pattern that resembles what you're looking for in terms of your target or body from always insufficient data, right? Because in any sort of targeting situation, we always have insufficient data. Now, that's a skill that, that not everyone has and probably only a minority of people in our industry have. Now, if you're doing... Very empirical. I'm going to go. I'm going to sample. I'm going to take the surface gold samples. I'm going to drill it. You know, those skills are. There's not such a premium on them. But I think when when you you're in undercover exploration, I think there's a much greater premium of having a conceptual model, uh, applying it to the very limited data that you've got, and using that to make predictions where you collect more data and then you reiterate mm-hmm. through the model. So, uh, and is this a skill that's trainable? I think probably not. I, I think we just need to se- that, you know, there's a degree of selection involved in that. And so we okay. need to have the, uh, the the right sort of people uh, doing that.
1: So one of the things we're trying to get at in this um, podcast is trying to deconstruct that and see if we can make it granular and whether it really is an intrinsic characteristic or whether we can work out what it is and whether it can be trained. So I'll give you an example when you get to looking for something that's very low probability, that is an outcome, and there are a number of industries that have this commonality, what role does expectation play? If my expectations were this is a rare event, how do I deal when that rare event actually occurs? I am looking for a fragment of information because that's all I'm going to get, especially in a new search space.
2: Well, I think you have to be optimistically biased, and, and we know that, that as exploration we are. So, you know, we don't drill holes because we're 100% certain that the data shows us that that an ore body is going to be there. We drill holes because we think the work we've done up to that point has increased the probability to a point where it's economic, at least on an expected monetary value basis, to drill that hole, right? I think you need to have an optimistic bias and you need to have a finely tuned radar for those bits of positive information or those bits of information that are a little bit ambiguous, you know. And what you do want to avoid is being too rigid in, in what your definition of a signal is.
1: So in, at the moment, we have an expectation. It's still a low probability event to find something. As we go further undercover and we have less background data, are we going to even have less evidence on which to base decisions on?
2: I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, um, the, the data we had when we were in the sur- surface exploration, the most meaningful data was probably one type of data anyway, which was you know su- surface geochemical anomalism, maybe supported sometimes by geophysical anomalism. I, I think in some ways it might even be easier as you, as you go undercover because the data sets that you have to work with will be limited, so you'll be able, you, it won't be very confusing. You'll be able, in the sense of having a plethora of different potential data sets, which historically a lot of them probably weren't that relevant, so it might enable you to be more clearly
1: focused. So I agree with you. The question is whether uh, anybody used to exploring at the surface is used to um, the value in maybe detailed systematic exploration, whereas undercover, there's a role for um, isolated pieces more of idea,
0: information. More idea-driven exploration, you think?
1: It's yeah. hard to be systematic early on in a program. Well, well, I, but yeah.
2: I, but, I, but I think, you know exploration always is going to have those two phases where you you apply concepts and models to say this is a good spot a volume an area but then it has to always have a process of testing that volume or area in a systematic way and it's you know it's really where is that trade off where where's that scale trade off where does that actually happen
1: so if i just clarify your point when, when you're undercover, we may actually have less noise or potentially less noise from surface-based outcrops that are adding nothing to the story uh, but are nonetheless complicating the story.
2: Yeah, you, you'll, you'll have a data set that, that, that you'll be more focused on because you'll have no choice and you'll you'll have to do the best you can with that data set. Hopefully you'll have more than one, but you're probably not going to have a whole lot.
0: I guess that's an interesting point because, I mean if you compare to the oil industry, you know they do have one kind of major fundamental data set Correct. that they that they use as well so so that is a good point actually that if if the problem's complex, then we're probably going to collect one really good data set rather than ten you know kind of vague data sets that we then have to try to figure out what they're telling us yeah that that that's right so so
2: uh Good point. Uh, uh, you know, and I would like to see us focusing more on wh- what are those key data sets. So going back to the point I made a few minutes ago, y- you know, collecting your own primary data in this volume, we need to pay a lot more attention to what that actually is. What what is that going to be? And 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 given that particular circumstance, how well is is what we decided to do going to be a fit or a- or a match to that?
0: So, so I guess, um, yeah, like I, I really like this point that you're talking about, that we should put some more effort into understanding what data sets we need to collect. Um, and I guess one of the the stories that I read about, which I quite like in this space, is when Disney started as a movie studio, they realized that by hiring people that have worked in movies to basically come across and make animation wasn't going to be a great result because none of these people had ever built animation so they essentially created a university where they taught people how to uh, create animation of animal moving so they would have a horse come in and there would be a class on having the horse walk on the treadmill and have a whole bunch of animators look at it and hmm. go well how does the animal actually move in frames so and i think that's a discussion that we're probably not having as much as we should about exactly what data sets should we be collecting in this new space? Yeah. Uh,
2: from what I see around the industry, I see a lot of people interested in footprints, but not many people doing the next piece of work which says, okay, I've done all this work, I've got this footprint, but is this? does this give me anything to exploit in systematically exploring this volume of, of rock that an ore body could be? and what are the limitations, that's right. applying it and then feeding that loop back. It seems like we just do a lot of footprint studies, we don't identify background, we don't identify false positives and, and also we don't, we don't actually apply these concepts in a systematic way and then feed them back in that's right. and then we wonder why we're not progressing.
1: So the reward system seems inappropriate, that's one of the things I would suggest for that. How do you publish a paper on testing a concept?
2: How do you publish a paper on 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 testing a concept?
1: Yes, is that considered to be too applied for science, mainstream science?
2: Well, I mean that. that I mean that. That's a good question, and 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 there's a big, you know, a, a big conversation about you know the academic reward system and and, and how that relates. Uh, you know, I I actually think that what we need in the industry is applied research which operates at that interface I mean that you know the underlying scientific advances are important and I think one of the one of the issues is that if we want that in industry we need to fund that more in industry so I think that that some of the problem has been the you know the withdrawal of industry from supporting a lot of that type of of research
0: so do you think that's one of the reasons why it's taking so long for these skill sets to to develop and change
2: yeah it's a really good point that that's a really good point so um so You guys have heard me talk about this concept of, of boundary spanners before, and that success in industrial R&D depends on the number of boundary spanners. People have got credibility on both sides of the fence, the academic and the industry fence, who can take new ideas and translate them. Now, that implies that companies are investing in those individuals, the chief geologists, the technical people. It implies that they're investing in uh, their own active R&D program, because if you don't do that, you're not going to have the individuals engage, you're not going to have the interaction with the external research providers. So uh, I totally agree. I, I think that underinvestment by major mining companies who could afford to do this is, is actually a big part of the problem.
1: So back to the concept of change, do you think our industry is slow?
2: Well, you'd have to say compared to industries like IT or, or biology, yes. you know. I, I mean, I find it interesting that you can have these concepts out there for two decades and, and uh, we, we don't respond to it very, very quickly. You know? We're like the massive big oil tanker ch- trying to turn around, I think, sometimes.
0: So, so do you care to comment why? Like, do you think it's because... Uh, like, w- what's the reason? Is it because too many people build their reputations on ideas or is it too well, hard to change?
2: Well, I, I think it's all those normal things. But the thing about mineral exploration is the lag time between changing behaviour and getting the clear demonstration of success is quite long. So if you're doing something that's a bit more immediate, like selling the latest iPhone, you know, you know, companies go from from, from nothing to, to $100 billion market cap and then nothing again.
0: That's right. Yep. And, and
2: that's happened. Companies yep. have done that in the whole time that we've been talking about, oh, maybe we should be changing, you know, our focused <laughs> undercover space. But that's because, you know, it, it, it's not like you do something and go out tomorrow and find a world... Or within the next month no, and find a it. world-class ore body. So part of it is actually you know the dynamics of our business and the big time lag between you know changing how you do things and 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 then getting the results. And the problem is that because of then superimposed on that is the dynamic of the cyclicity of our industry. Metal prices are up, everyone invests in expiration, Metal prices are down, they don't. So those cycles are actually shorter than the cycles required to demonstrate the success or failure of a technology, so the chance of actually being in place long enough to see that correlation without it being disrupted is also not very high.
0: No, that's hard, and I think like the two points you made, I think are absolutely spot on the the time it takes and I think the cost as well like you know we often talk about i t but you know, you can start an i t company with a laptop and a desk. it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to be able to do that with a mineral exploration company yeah
2: know. the barrier the barriers to entry but I, yeah. but I do want to comment on cost because i I actually think that a you know an efficient effective twenty first century undercover exploration focused world is not necessarily a world spending more on exploration than we spend at the moment because I think vast amounts of money are spent currently on wasted projects right the the so called ad, ad, yeah. advanced projects where there 's a lot of data but they 're never likely to be. Uh, to to be economic, I think you have to spend real amounts of money on undercover exploration. You, you you know you need to spend that in a persistent way. The current way that we finance the junior exploration sector is, is completely suboptimal, almost the worst way that you could design it yep. for for the for the purposes of it. Um, a little bit better behaviour in, in in the larger companies in terms of persistence, but still very, you know, very uh, susceptible to price cycles and in particular surprisingly even in the very big companies we, you know and that hopefully that's changing but in the past we've seen you know a lot of who could afford to maintain steady state expiration we've seen uh, you know fluctuations in 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 the expiration spend in response to to other issues yep um but but you know it it it's a game successful expiration is a persistence game where you're learning from experience, uh, you, you've got a goal, and and you're you know successively uh, you know exploring over time a portfolio of projects.
1: So you you're a big fan of behavioural economics. That's mm-hmm. your latest thing. What has that taught you about say behavioural change in our industry? Well,
2: I I think you know I don't know whether any of you have read the Richard Thaler's book um, Misbehaving, which Richard Thaler. Was the second guy to get a, a Nobel Prize for Behaviour Economics in two thousand fifteen, after Kahneman, in in two thousand and two, and in in his book he talks about something called the Dumb Principle Problem, and and I think this is this is really really relevant. So if you can indulge me to provide a bit of context, so, so one of the reasons when we look around our industry we see a lot of behaviour where people are investing their expiration dollar in projects that have a pretty low probability of actually becoming a valuable asset for their company. But these are, these are assets that have got a lot of information. They're, they're, they're data-rich. They're often referred to as, as advanced projects. And you ask yourself the question, well, why is that happening? And the first response is, well, it's a failure of agency. So if I'm an expiration manager, if I do those projects... And whether I'm in a junior company or a big company, right. yeah. uh, I, there's already mineralization known. I'm going to get a news flow. Uh, so it's going to. L- I'm going to be able to generate an illusion of progress. Also, at the same time, everyone else is doing it. So I'm not... Yeah, it's that whole saying that it's it's better to be wrong with everyone else yeah, than, that's than, right. than be write out by, ro- out by yourself and right some of the time. And, yeah, you know. exactly. So... Um, so that's part of it. So you could say, oh, well, look, that's just a, a failure of agency because people prefer to do that if you're an exploration manager than go out and do some, some Greenfields program, right? But as, as Thaler pointed out, you know, he was working with this company and working with the CEO and, and 10 divisional heads, and, and he asked them all how many of them would take on a project that had a, a, a 50% probability of making a $2 million profit and a 50% probability of losing a million dollars. In other words, you know, the average was it was going to make a million dollars for the company. And very few people of those 10 division heads said they would take that on, right, for pretty obvious reasons. You've got a 50% chance, which is pretty high, of losing a big chunk of money, and you're probably going to get sacked. And then he asked the CEO, how many of those projects would he actually want his, his um, managers to do? And he said, all of them, right? Right. Because the more that they did, the more it increased the overall expected value of the company. So is it a failure of agency then, or is it, and this is where Taylor comes up with the idea of the dumb principle problem, the reason why people don't do this is they know that they're going to get, they're probably going to get sacked if they fail. So I think one of the problems in in many large organisations, and I used to think this was a problem generic to the exploration mining industry, but reading Thaler made me realise it was probably a a broader problem of our large organisational culture is there's a real asymmetry for risk-taking. There's a real asymmetry in the rewards for risk-taking in large organizations. So if you take a risk as a manager and you fail, the consequences are way more severe than the monetary equivalent of, of the success, right? So everyone wants to avoid failure. So when you step back and you look at it, you say, well, that's actually a function of the culture. So I wanna change the conversation, particularly if I'm talking to people about exploration in large companies, and not When I want to talk about risk, I want to say to them, look at your portfolio, are your projects risky enough? That is the question you should be asking. Not I want to m- reduce risk because we all know that there's an efficient risk frontier. If you want a great reward, you've got to take a great risk. All these big companies, and Taylor talks about this as well, all these big companies, they want the big reward, but right. they don't take the commensurate risk. So he, so he talks about you know, you know, great stated objections and then timid action. And this is this is what we see. So what Thaler made me realize is it wasn't just our industry. So, But if you're a very large mining company and you have to find the next Escondida or some very, very large, extremely rare, profitable opportunity, if you're not doing really out there high-risk opportunities, you've got no chance. If you're doing the same things as the rest of the industry looking for small stuff, you are actually dramatically increasing the overall risk to the company because the individual risk in your portfolio is not high enough. In other words, over a 20-year life, a company like BHP has to find something big to stay in the game. It can only do that if its projects are all very high risk. So every project that's not high risk enough is adding to the risk of the overall
1: success of the company. And I think this is not well understood. So if you keep going with that logic, the people who run exploration in these very big companies, they're going to have to either have taken themselves through a transition of thinking or their thinkers in their own right, but if they are just the logical extension of their whole careers, that doesn't sound good to me. Well, I think,
2: uh, but what the dumb principle problem says is it's got to actually start right at the leadership of the company. The leadership of the company has got to understand this, and in a major mining company, you know, it, it people have got to see expiration as important. And this has kind of been the been the other challenge because, you know, a, a, as we get these companies that are worth over a hundred billion dollars the immediate impact within a CEO's tenure of making a billion-dollar discovery. And hey, we'd all love to make a billion-dollar discovery, billion-dollar NPV discovery. But you know what? Their share price fluctuates more than that on any given day. So it doesn't yeah, become a priority fine. to manage, right? But if you go not four or five years of a CEO's tenure, but 10 years, 20 years, and you haven't made those discoveries, your company's ultimately toast, right? So it needs a different perspective. And, the, and, and that comes right from the top, and that's where I think the boards of these companies have to uh, ha- have to provide the leadership, and it needs to recognise that expiration is important, and it needs to recognise that you've got to you've got to have the right risk profile,
1: right? We used to joke about this in BHP, the three of us, that the only way we could really impact the share price was downwards, rather than upwards. That encourages you to be risk averse.
2: Correct. That's exactly what I'm saying, Steve. Yeah. So
1: where does your motivation come from on a day to day basis to push the limits? it has to come from within but it has to be part of the culture of the business if you actually go to work every day and in your heart of heart you know you cannot impact eventually you are just a salary thief
2: eventually you stop trying um and and yeah and and are you doing the right thing for the shareholder no no probably probably not particularly in, in a business like ours which is is not about keeping the lights on but it, but it's really about finding the next thing the next big thing that keeps us in the business yeah
1: how would you run a big company? What would you do different?
2: I think leadership is is absolutely critical. One of the lessons you learn in life is that nothing happens without the right leadership, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so you need leadership of the expiration group that, that really understands this, and and they need the support, uh, you know, the understanding and the trust with the with with the board. You you then need to resource the expiration properly, and that means a you know a commitment, and many companies at times say we're going to make this commitment and in almost all cases I'm aware of they break they break it within the time frame so so that's part of the problem and there's always a good reason for doing that but but if you're a company that's lasted 100 years and you want to last another 50 or 100 years you've got to stick to those those commitments you've got to engage in an external ecosystem of R&D and innovation and that's really important it can't just be uh, research projects on a case by case basis you need you need long term relationships and a critical set of those long-term relationships are with the best institutions producing the best graduates and that was certainly something Roy Woodall really understood very well with with Western mining because at the end of the day it's people getting the best people in the system and then you have to invest in internal training right and and you know one of the great things that Roy did at Western mining was a study leave scheme and and no companies do that. Some people have talked about bringing it back, but companies who are much, much bigger than Western Mining when it funded that scheme, much more uh, stronger financial resources, they, they don't do it. They don't send people away to study ore systems and to bring them back in the system. Now, you have to do more than that in the 21st century. You have to do internal training. You have to do internal training on what exploration is really about, what you're trying to find. The exploration search space, the false positive concept, a whole array of things which are not taught at, at university. So that has, to be, that has to be part of the culture. And, and you have to have a very strong culture of learning from experience, of openness. Uh, you, you can't have a culture where people get shot for disagreeing with the boss. You, know, you can't have a culture where people walk the corridor saying, what interests my boss fascinates me. You've got to have a culture where people are, are prepared to argue, they're prepared to debate, and, and that's accepted. We're people who are pains in the... I tolerate it. You can say it, John.
0: We have, a, we have the appropriate rating. We <laughs> have the appropriate rating.
2: <laughs> well, 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 we're people who are pains in the ass? They, 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 they're not voted off the island at the first opportunity, right? You need to keep those... You need to have a culture that tolerates tolerates that.
1: So do you think we've become too short-termism? Oh, absolutely. So is that part of the cycle the cyclic nature of our industry thats causing that, or is it just that things are getting tighter and tighter?
2: Oh, I think it's um, it, it, it's the overall evolution of our society over the last three or four decades. Everything's sped up. Uh, you know, the technology, the financial flows, the information flows are much quicker. People's attention spans, um, their, their desire for immediate results, uh, has increased. But paradoxically, that becomes often highly value-destructive in our industry. So, so companies who want to, and an example, which will remain nameless, but decides that many years ago it wants to get into the nickel business, it could start a, a well-resourced and could afford to start a well-resourced nickel exploration program, maybe $50 million a year for 10 years. Instead, it spends a billion dollars buying an asset that's completely worthless, right? And I think to me, the argument I would make on that is that if you gave me that exploration program, the worst result you could get. Was losing half as much money over ten times as long a time. Yeah, that's uh, the worst possible result. And you might actually find something. So, yeah.
1: So I've even gone a step further than that and gone to business development groups and said, if you gave me a billion dollars, I'll outperform you a hundredfold over a ten-year period. Yep. And and everyone goes, oh no no no. I went no no a hundredfold or you get the money back. And you're like, no one would ever take that on. But I actually believe that in my heart of heart as well.
0: The problem with your offer was that it was going to take 10 years.
1: So there's this time lag that people are finding inappropriate. And I I love your point about society, that everyone's got expectations. This leads me on to culture, which is a word that we use all the time. And one of the things that I've noticed, because I've been the chief geologist now of three companies, who essentially want an instantaneous Western mining culture. I apologise to those companies, but every single one of them wants it done instantly without understanding that it's an iterative building process. And, for example, the study lead classic is like, people don't really have the trust in somebody for them to go away for three or four years. That trust element from both sides seems to have been now broken by this time, time span as well.
2: Well, it's true that in the past there was much more of this idea that the company looked after you, you stayed with the company, and we, we are in a, in a different world as, as far as that goes. But, but I still believe that if, if you provide the right opportunities and the right culture for these people to come back into, they, they will come back. And I will make a comment on, on, on the Western mining culture because I talked about Roy Woodall being such a strong advocate for the study leaf system. But I want to make the point that Roy, and I think it was about 1953, went and did a master's at Berkeley in 1953. So this is a small West Australian gold mining company sent Roy Woodall to Berkeley in California to do a master's in 1953, right? And at that stage, Western Mining had already been in existence as a company for 20 years, and it was founded as a company with the particular uh, mandate of applying innovation, science, and technology to to mineral exploration. So the culture went very, very deep. But that, that sort of culture... Um, takes a while to develop, and 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 it has, you know, it has to be sincere, and and you, and you have to invest in it. I think,
0: and I guess one of the points that we made at, in a previous episode, you know, we talk about the fact that the boom and bust cycle, and I think that creates this problem where every time you start a new culture at the start of a new cycle, it inevitably gets um, killed at the end of that cycle when uh, companies get rid of exploration groups. So it seems like we perennially. Try creating these new cultures, and they last one cycle, and they kind of go out.
2: Well, well I think I think that's that, that's a choice, though, and I think it was very interesting to use a specific example that during the the, the GFC and when Rio Tinto had a, a near death experience, they did choose to keep their expiration group, not spend any money on actually doing anything for a year because they could see that it was temporarily, mm-hmm. and and continue right. So in the past, the traditional thing would have been, well, we just get, you can't spend the money, you just get rid yeah, of everyone. so get rid of the team. So, so right. there was a conscious choice that was taken. And I think these things always are conscious choices.
1: So I agree with you. That's the best example I know where they actually valued the people and realized yeah. that to rebuild those people was just a prohibitive task. Well, impossible, right? Impossible
2: task. I, I mean, some of these groups that, that, that you've assembled, you know, accumulated wisdom of four or five decades... It's not prohibitive. It's actually not possible, right? It's just physically not possible yeah, to do. Yeah, that's a good
0: point, actually. Yeah.
1: So um, let's just digress for a few seconds and talk about other industries. One of the the things that you've been that you've mentioned a number of times is things like pharmaceutical industries, industries that have a similar low base rate of success, and are going through similar transitions in many ways. So, farmers, one of them. Petroleum is the one that we're obviously most aware of. What do you think the pharmaceutical industry has been through?
2: Well, I think that you know, the, the transition for the pharmaceutical industry is there's only so many different combinations of, of, of chemicals that, 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 that you can apply. And I guess what they were hoping for is that the, the genome would, you know, would give them the, the equivalent of the undercover search base, but I don't think it's really paid off for them so far. And then, they're in, then, then the focus becomes things like bioprospecting. But I think they're, they're kind of looking around for for new search spaces um in a way i think we're in a much better position because i i think our new search spaces are pretty obvious and and our our main problem is not a lack of search space it's an industry that's not yet orienting itself to that search space our global industry spends you know many billions of dollars depending on where we are in the cycle but i would argue that something like 80% of that is spent in depleted search spaces it, you know if we took half that money that's spent in depleted search spaces and reoriented towards um undepleted search spaces. Now that would involve doing different things along the lines we previously discussed, but you would have the resources to do it as as an industry. But of course we're not we're not one monolithic industry. We're we're hundreds of, you know, several thousand, probably more couple thousand junior companies globally and a, you know, maybe a hundred big companies and yeah.
1: I like to put myself in the pharmaceutical situation and sort of imagine what it's like to essentially understand a whole range of biological biochemical processes and then suddenly one day have to imagine new ones mm-hmm. that I think is an analogous situation to where're in we've sort of learnt a whole right bunch of forensic science mm. and now we're into the position where we have to system science yeah. and understand it from scratch yeah. in order to generate something that's genuinely new as yep. opposed to an iteration of something yeah. Yeah. from the past.
2: Yeah, that's right. And 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 the system science perspective uh, isn't taught at university. So I mean I hope it will be in the future. But 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 you know i I think it is interesting to reflect on, you know, the the progress of science and how it starts off, any science, particularly any natural science, starts off as a, a series of observations and then these observations get Classified, you might want to call that the taxonomic phase of a science. So we saw that with biology, Linnaeus, etc. And then as you progress, you you develop a more of a mechanistic, a process understanding. So you know we saw Darwin's theories come in with biology, and then we saw the understanding of genetics and molecular biology providing a kind of more of a evolutionary biology, providing a, a process based framework. I think when it comes to, and we saw the same thing with. Plate tectonics. The example you talked about before, you had uh, observations about tectonic environments and taxonomic. Was it a geosyncline or a ugeocline or whatever? And then what plate tectonics did is provided a a framework. You know, an actual mm-hmm. process-based framework for that. Um, where we are with mineral deposits is just at the very early stages of moving from a taxonomic phase, it's an orogenic gold deposit, it's a porphyry deposit, to a, uh, a process, an explanatory a systems-based phase, which is, is mineral systems. And, but this is where I, I am actually going to criticise the research community because I think we've made some fundamental uh, discoveries over the last decade. For example, as we've got better and better geochronology, that ore formation occurs in these narrow windows of organisation. This is a profound observation, and I think that should reorient the focus of, of, of all our science. But it's not. People are continuing to do the same sort of work. But the fact that you it know, doesn't matter what type of deposit you're, you're dealing with, you see this tectonic geodynamic context, that's saying something fundamental about the physics of all systems that goes across everything.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it should be a target. It should be a massive target for, for at least young researchers, if the old researchers are are too high bound, but I'm not seeing that
1: so w- one of the ways I know that Graham Big, is a fellow colleague of ours, talks about this is it's it's like whether the geodynamic context is chapter nine of the book, yeah. and it's it's an addendum, yeah. or whether it's front and center and it's the driving point, and it's whether it's you're doing something with foresight or hindsight. Are you adding context to your deposit or are you actually trying to find it, and so the deposit is the end point? Of your discovery process, so we are trained economic geologists. So we usually start at the end and work backwards, as opposed to we're actually exploring. Yeah, that's right. We're forensic. Well, that's right. Well, that's
0: the
2: historical. That's the historical legacy of the science, and that just reflects an availability bias. And and you know, as we've got more and more data, we've been able to see the bigger picture. But I think you summarise that quite neatly. But our challenge is actually to predict the system inwards. But the perspective that that I take on these systems is, is to actually reject all those classifications. I mean, we do have to use them to communicate with others and even ourselves. But but fundamentally, if we want to understand ore systems, we need to understand them first and foremost as mass-concentrating, highly organised, mass-concentrative systems in the crust. We need to work out what creates one of those systems, and then we can worry about what sort of chemistry might be mapped onto that which will make an ore body. And I think... So that's what I call the fluid-centric perspective, the dynamic fluid-centric perspective... And, and this is what the textbook should, should look like. It should be talking about what it be, because I, I don't think all deposits are a random, giant all deposits are a random product of the intersection of a whole lot of processes. If, if they were, we should see um, random distributions, but we don't. We see structured and, and highly ordered distributions both in time and space. I th- instead view all deposits as the rare but predictable outcomes of small parts of the parameter space of, of the evolution of our terrains. And if we can define those those parameters in time as well as space, and it's multi-scale in time as well as space, then I think we can be far more effective at targeting those systems.
0: So in your opinion, who do you think has the responsibility for, for putting this idea out there? Do you think it has to be like researchers? Does it have to be uh, companies? Or does it have to be a new breed of people like, boundary spanners that have to do this.
2: Well I think there's a component of it that's fundamental science, right? That can only be done by researchers where this is their day job to do science. Mm-hmm. And and the original idea, the germ of the idea can come from someone outside the research community, a bit like, you know, Wagner was not really in the geoscience research community, but the people who take it, run with it and uh, and take it to the next level need to be people who've got the resources of research groups. You know, th- these are fundamental things that I don't think can be done by uh, industry geologists in their spare time, because, or, or it, not even in their spare time, as a small component of their job. Because at the end of the day, we are about working for the shareholder to
0: yeah that's to, to find new yep.
2: deposits. We can, as industry geoscientists, I think we can make an enormous contribution to the thinking. I think we can be part of the team. I think we're essential part of the team. But no, I don't think it's our primary responsibility. Okay, I, I think we we need leadership from the uh, economic geology academic community and we and we need people to step up and we probably need a new generation to step up
0: okay
1: so john one question we ask all our guests is an idea that needs to die within an expiration and can be a, a concept a behavior It can be anything you like something that we currently do or have been doing that we need to stop doing
2: yeah well that's easy the the idea of a advanced <laughs> project or the low risk project the advanced project it's not advanced in, it's sitting there because it's stalled, right? And um it may have a lot of data. It 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 might be data rich, but that doesn't mean it's advanced. So this idea that that the world is full of these projects that have been discovered and all you need to and, and because this and because there's a lot of information, because there is quite a bit there's mineralization there, this is somehow a lower risk opportunity than going out into somewhere new undercover in the middle of the desert or somewhere else. That's the idea that I think it's, it's manifestly wrong, right? And that's the idea I would, I would like to to see um, go because many of the not all of them, in some of these projects you can add value by exploration, but in a very large proportion of them, the only way that they would ever be economic is if you had top of the cycle metal prices for two decades or a decade. And that's that will funny. never happen. It never has and it never will.
1: See, I, I, have a th- I agree with you completely on this. This is a bane of my day job. And one, I have this theory that I was just thinking about today that one of the reasons is that these advanced projects actually are mentioned many, many times. So you get an email where somebody knows about this project. Nobody knows about the new one that just arose out of the data. But the project that's been around for a while, everybody's aware of it. So even though 10% of people hate it, it's still got a popularism a, a mass that's that's developed of it. <laughs> well, I think
2: that's right, but I think it also goes back to the points I was making before about exploration decision making and the you know the dumb principle or the failure of agency yeah. problem is is you know they're high profile projects, um, you know there's a lot of information you can drill holes, you can get report into sections,
0: but there's a complete misunderstanding of the risk reward profile. In Correct. Correct.
2: In fact, I, I would say and and just to elaborate that point is the greatest source of wealth destruction in the exploration, and actually the mining industry in general, but exploration component of in particular, is confusing the two concepts of risk and certainty. So okay. an asset may be highly certain because, you know, you've got a lot of drill holes, you've drilled a lot of mineralization, but it is not necessarily lower risk than a greenfield's glean in the eye that you're nothing about, right? Because... Two reasons. One, this so-called advanced project, this data-rich advanced project, first of all, is going to cost you a lot of money, a lot of money to get in and then a lot of money to take it to the next level. Whereas your gleam in the eye to take it to the next milestone is is, is often quite cheap. And the second reason is, in many cases, this advanced project is as dead as it could be. If you're from a risk perspective, if you define risk from the perspective of the company making an economic return on its investment because, you know, and you see this, people investing $30 million to take to a higher level of JORC-compliant resource status, something that will never, ever under any foreseeable circumstances, That's, um, you know, be, be economic. And I like to say that, you know, there are two types of exploration projects, right? There are the high-risk ones and then there's the no-hope ones. So you better make sure that you're on the high-risk ones because that's where the money's to be made.
1: So you had a comment in there that's just magic, which I've written down here, which is the illusion of progress. I reckon yeah. that sums up absolutely everything when it comes to investors, yeah. expiration
0: managers, the like. Yeah, you can see how companies can benefit from that on, on, on a market, uh, on a stock market through yeah. the illusion of progress. And in the more, short term. Yeah, that's So, But not in the long term.
1: John, um, thanks very much for the conversation today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Really no, happy, it. happy
0: to chat, guys. Cheers. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve the Mod. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.